Shira Wanda Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we are at the the tail end of the Imagining the Latina, Latino, Latinx Midwest Symposium, uh, and we're recording this episode in front of a live audience. Thank you. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Daryl Wanzer Serrano, uh, and I'm joined today by uh, by our three fabulous speakers who I'll uh, I'll quickly let introduce themselves uh, before we get into questions. So starting on my left. Yes. Hello. I'm Lilia Fernandez, professor of Latino Caribbean studies and history at Rutgers University. Hi, I'm Dr. Suhey Vega, associate professor of women and gender studies at Arizona State University. And I'm Teresa Delgadillo, and I'm a professor of comparative studies at The Ohio State University. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Your talks were invigorating, um, life-giving. Uh, we had great audiences here all day. Uh, and what we'd like to do here uh, in this in this last session is kind of take a step back from the um, from the specific research talks and think a bit more broadly about Latina, Latina, Latinx studies. How you came to this uh, to this field, um, and and kind of what you think the value and importance of the field is. Uh, and so the question we always start off with. It's the question we, we all, the, the co-host and I answered uh, in the first episode that we recorded is when and how did you get your start doing Latina, Latino, Latinx studies? Like what's your origin story? And anyone can start first. And they're looking at me, so I guess I'll have to start. <laughs> uh, well, I will say that ever since I was a little girl, I was always interested in history and the past. And uh, it was my mother's and my grandmother's stories growing up that really fueled my curiosity and uh, inspired me to pursue history as, um, as an area of study. However, I found that the discipline uh, in many ways did not uh, make space at the time for the kind of work that I wanted to do, that there were still questions about whether... Chicana or Latina, Latino um, people should be studying, quote unquote, their own communities and whether or not that was objective scholarship. And so I ended up doing my graduate training in an ethnic studies department where I felt like everyone understood why we were studying the topics that we were interested in and that there was no question about that. And uh, the focus on Latino populations and their histories, uh, how they've come to the United States, specifically the Midwest and Chicago, which I study. That's really what's been behind all of the work that I've done, uh, the, the research that I've done and the work that I've published over the last 15 years. That's great. Thank you. Uh, so I'll continue because I actually have a very similar story. So wonderful. Uh, so this is Suhey Vega. And uh, I, too, when I was younger, kind of got the history bug. Um, in part, that's because uh, one of my gra uh, grade school friends, his dad, um, was in, involved in the uh, UFW movement in California. So when Cesar Chavez passed away, um, he invited me to go to the funeral. Um, and so I went to this funeral completely, you know, doe-eyed, had no idea what was going on, um, didn't know who Cesar Chavez was, to be honest. Uh, so at, coming back from that funeral and just kind of seeing the mass 
mourners and the importance of what he meant for my my, my people. Um, it made me feel like this needs to be, I want, I want to know more. Um, and in uh, undergraduate, uh, I wanted to be a historian to, to do history as well, to kind of document these stories. But um, the history department that I was um, involved in was very much a um, datelines history, not a stories history. So I, you know, gravitated towards anthropology as a place to tell the stories. Um, and in particular, I wanted to make sure stories like that of my mom and dad, my tias and tios were actually being told um, and, and shared. Um, and so those stories that normally don't make it into the headlines. Um, and I think that's what brought me to the Midwest because I noticed there was a gap, right, in what, as a Southwest scholar, I knew about this experience. When you were talking about the Cesar Chavez funeral, I was thinking about Susuhe's now at ASU. And when I was a student at ASU, um, he died when I was a student at ASU. And I remember Cordelia Candelario organized a memorial in that little chapel near, uh, yeah, just really well attended. Um, So for me, it was literature. um, And uh, I have a really memorable. uh, strong, uh, you know, memorable uh, times from my childhood, uh, youth of reading literature, of find, just going through the, you know, Mitchell Street Live Forest Home Library on Mitchell, near Mitchell Street in Milwaukee and going through A to Z, the authors, you know, I had no sense of direction of what to read. And so alphabetical seemed to make sense. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, and I will forever remember the difference it made to come across Zora Neale Hurston's work at such a young age, and before it was sort of rediscovered. Um, but it was just so impactful um, to me uh, a, 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 to, to sort of get that. Uh, a, and, and I think um, I think another key moment for me was later, I was living in, much later, I was living in New York and just working and being active in social justice things. And I remember walking into the Barnes & Noble on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village and there was this huge display of um, Oscar Ijuelos' and the, Mam- the Mambo Kings book, Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love, first Latino novel to win a Pulitzer Prize, um, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a huge display, and it's the first time I had ever seen a piece of Latino literature on display everywhere in a major bookstore. And that registered for me because just five years before, a friend had given me a mimeograph copy of um, Diablo en Tejas, one of the um, Tejano writers' um, books that only existed as a mimeograph copy uh, uh, that was circulated. And so that really registered, and I was like, oh, I can now go study this. (laughs) And um, that led me back to school, and fortunately... One of the really, I had a really great teacher when I went back to school who um, spent some time um, leading us through Borderlands La Frontera, which was like, whew, okay, I found my road. (laughs) So one thing that that makes me curious, and I think there's going to be some different answers here, um, is how does situating your scholarship in Latina, Latina, Latinx studies provide you with kind of unique tools or methods um, or attitudes toward inquiry 
to ask and answer questions that you may not have been able to do quite as productively using more disciplinary approaches. So what does, you know, what's the kind of like added advantage of Latino, Latino, Latinx studies that you might not otherwise have if you were kind of siloed into the field where you got your degree? So I'll start a few minds. Um, what, for me, I'm, I'm trained as an anthropologist and I was, you know, in a unit, in a department in which the majority of folks left the country to do research. Um, and I had always, I came in with the knowledge that I was going to do U.S.-based work. And that was uh, not the norm, we'll say. <laughs> and so um, I had to kind of find theory and readings and literature and scholarship that talked about kind of a critically engaged U.S. experience on Latinx populations that was not being given, obviously, in the intro to anthro classes or even other advanced grad seminars because you're not used to a U.S. focus, right? And then for me personally, I love the interdisciplinary aspect of, of Latinx studies so that I bring in archival work, I bring in novels, poetry, um, to kind of, again, give you a, a larger sense of what this experience is. Um, and to me, that's, that's what Latinx studies does for anthropology, um, but in general, for, for even me, for my students, it, it broadens our understanding of what this experience is from multiple perspectives. That's great. Well, I think that um, the primary benefit of taking a Latino, um, Latina, Latinx studies approach for me, uh, studying history has been starting with the premise that um, Latinx people's history matters and that they have been historical actors in our past, not only in Latin America, but here in the United States. So uh, that was not necessarily... uh, accepted in the discipline of history, I think. I mean, you know, our textbooks will show you that for the most part, we have been left out. Uh, You know, besides the mention of the U.S.-Mexican War or, you know, kind of gratuitous um, things here and there, you really uh, don't get a sense going through a traditional U.S. education uh, in uh, elementary or even high school that... Latinos were part of this nation's history and that we contributed anything. So that's the first thing, beginning with that premise. Uh, I think that really makes a difference. And the second thing is expanding our methods beyond just the traditional archives left behind by elite people, by those who were literate, who kept records, who uh, wrote diaries, who wrote letters to one another, uh, who ran companies, who... Um, controlled the government, you know, worked for the government, that sort of thing. So in that regard, oral histories have been a very important method for scholars studying uh, the Latino past. And thankfully, uh, in the discipline of history, oral history uh, has been become has become more acceptable as a method over the last couple of decades. But even in the 1980s, there were still many historians who were very skeptical of the objectivity, the validity, the reliability of drawing on people's sometimes flawed and sometimes you know inconsistent or incomplete memories of the past. I think that for me, there's certainly value for in thinking about Latino literature, Latina and Latino literature, Chicana Chicano literature, in relation to an American literary canon, um, and to thinking about what you know this, what it owes to that canon, how it participates in that canon, um, how it is part of the American experience. 
But I think the bigger um, thinking about it from a Latina and Latino studies perspective uh, allows me, I think, a much greater access to thinking interdisciplinarily about literature. Um, and I think that that's really important. I think that's sort of a hallmark of Latino literary studies, actually. Um, when I think about, you know, Ramon Saldivar's so, such important work, Chicano narrative, the very, you know, beginning of our field where he lays out the significance of history to thinking about literature, you know, history as a context for understanding that uh, Chicano n narrative, Chicano literature, and by extension, Latino literature. Um, but also all, all these other kind of disciplinary approaches to thinking about what's happening in literature. And I'm, I'm really interested in the work that literature does. So I'm really interested in thinking about how literature works itself, but also what work does it do in the world that it appears in. Um, and, and so that is why I really love that I can bring in um, other disciplinary methods and questions and concerns into thinking about um, the literary project. Uh, and I think that's what the, the interdisciplinary mm -hmm. Latino studies gives to, to that. Yeah. A quick follow-up on this, um, because I'm trying to think, this might be the first panel that we've had where everyone has a significant appointment or their or their their whole appointment in uh in in a in a kind of like interdisciplinary unit right um and you're you know you're split is it 50 50 or <laughs> uh 75 in latino and caribbean okay. studies 25 percent in history mm -hmm. so so Given what you all said about how kind of the intellectual formations of uh, Latinx studies empowers the work that you do, um, how does that kind of the institutional positionality that you have in more interdisciplinary spaces um, help to enable that and, and, and empower that work uh, at, your, at your universities? Well, I think one of the advantages of being in, uh, in my case, in a Latino and Caribbean studies department is that I get to engage in conversations with colleagues who are doing all kinds of different work, sociologists, literary scholars, anthropologists, political scientists, uh, and others. Um, I think that it, it, it enriches our, um, one's own thinking about uh, you know, the research that we do in considering other methods, other questions that other types of uh, scholars ask. I will say that it's not without its challenges because in some ways, I think many of us still feel beholden to traditional disciplines and having to speak to our colleagues in those areas um, to assert our legitimacy. So while on the one hand, we're glad to be among other uh, scholars in other fields, uh, there's still something there that I think we need to sh prove that we are indeed historians or anthropologists or you know whatever what whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I I, um, I think that in some ways, maybe in some places more than others, um, that the, for me the interdisciplinary space space has been uh, really important to allowing me to cultivate the kind of work that I want to do uh, in, in relation to literature, but also in relation to oral history, life stories, right? Thinking about that from a literary and historical perspective. 
Um, so that has been really crucial. And, and it's, I, I feel sometimes like it allows me, I don't feel the constraint of having to do things in a strictly disciplinary way. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the work is um, always um, then legible to others, um, but it, it certainly helps. And uh, my colleagues in the Latino Studies, Latino and Latino Studies program at OSU, similarly, we're not a department, we're a program, but people from all different disciplines involved in the program and being able to work with students and teach in an interdisciplinary way in Latino studies has been so um, such a gift, you know, as a scholar to have the ability to think about um, those different approaches and questions as you yourself are engaged in research, maybe not right on the thing that you're teaching about, but um, it, it's a valid, and students value that so much. I mean, I have had so many classes is where students come away from it thinking, oh, I never really thought about how what I, we were doing in psychology is different than what we're doing in history. Like, I never really thought about, like, what's the, you know, uh, in much to, and so think, but having to think about Latino studies from those multiple perspectives mm-hmm. allows them to have, I think, a stronger sense of, of some of those questions for themselves, disciplinary differences. I do think that English departments are, there are more English departments today that are more interdisciplinary than they were in the past. I don't know if that's true in history or anthropology. Um, uh, no. <laughs> but no, it feels that way to me. Not anthropology, for sure. <laughs> um, so I'm actually not affiliated at all with my discipline in, in ASU. Um, um, by design, maybe I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I think and the so I'm in the school of social transformation that has within it um, African African American studies, Asian Pacific American studies, gender studies, and justice studies. And in that, my colleagues, we all start from the same kind of common understanding, even though we do drastically different kind of communities at times. Um, we all kind of are. We get it, right? There's no having to explain what we're doing or the the critical approaches we're taking, um, and I think that's a huge difference for me in terms of whether I go when I go to Latino Studies Association meetings or American Studies versus an Anthropology meeting, where I feel like there's a lot of back uh, having to. Ex- uh, explain myself um, and justify what I'm doing uh, and justify the lens, the critical lens by which I'm taking that I don't have to do when I'm with other inter- interdisciplinary scholars. Um, they're doing good critical work. Yeah. If I could pivot now uh, to two students, since this was brought up in, in, in some of these answers, um, I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about why you think uh, Latina, Latina, Latinx studies is valuable to undergraduates, to higher education institutions, and to communities. I think it's really valuable. As I said before, I think it's really valuable to students uh, because it it is a place, um, uh, can be an an academic approach that allows students to think uh, critically about the methods of disciplines and the kind of evidence they use and the questions that they answer or can't answer. 
Um, and when you're thinking about um, your starting point is questions about the Latino experience or Latino population or, 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 um, or, or Latino cultural expression, your starting point in the question isn't necessarily a disciplinary one. And so I think that provides some breadth for students to be able to think about uh, think about answering it. I think it's very valuable for the institution. And I think for all, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a major... Uh, land-grant, Midwestern, Big Ten University. Um, and I think that our, pro- our very small program um, does enormous work for the school. Uh, the students who take our classes um, have, you know, the number of students who take our classes has been growing. The number of students who are really interested in wanting to learn more about a population that they see as significant and in a time when they are not sure that they agree with the sorts of popular discourse that's circulating. So sort of in a moment of sort of political crisis, I feel like students are really have a lot of questions that they are bringing to the Latino studies classroom and wanting just to know more and to be able to think more about these questions. Not that we can provide answers, but we can provide a space for them to think about them um, in ways that are different than they will get in in disciplines. Um, and I think that that's vitally important for underscoring, particularly to Latino students, that they too come from communities of knowledge uh, and that that knowledge is valued in, a, in an institution of higher education. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything that Teresa said. Um, I think one of the things that's most gratifying about teaching a class like Introduction to Latino Studies, for example, is when I ask students, um, why are you interested in this course? And they say, because I want to learn more about the community or where I'm from or you know, my origins, that sort of thing. And that's good because I've had some students in the past who will say things like, uh, well, I'm Chicano, so I know all the history. <laughs> As if somehow we're born with this knowledge, right? Um, but there's a way in which Latino studies courses, I think, provide a sense of cultural affirmation and a sense of belonging for our students. And I think that's really fabulous. But I I still push my students to um, be challenged and to think about the kinds of academic and intellectual skills that the discipline can provide them and that they'll need going out into the workforce. you know, there's there's a lot of work that we have to do, I think, to recruit and attract students to a major or minor like Latino studies when so many of them, especially if they're first generation, if they come from low income or immigrant families, their parents are expecting them to study nursing or accounting or to be pre-med or to go into business or something, you know. Um, carreras, right? <laughs> Fields that will produce a vocation that will set you on a path for um, a particular profession. So, um, one of the things that I stress to students is that Latino studies classes give you um, a degree of uh, cultural competency, not only for Latino students, but for non Latino students as well. You should know something about the 50 million people in the United States today who identify as being of um, Latin American or Latino origin. 
Um, you should be aware about the controversies around immigration, about the historical contributions of uh, Latino people. Uh, you should be uh, understand something about how some of these um, celebrity icons and figures in popular culture today got to where they are and why they're so appealing and um, sell so many records or get so many clicks or, you know, or views um, on Netflix and that sort of thing. So that's what I would say. I would echo both of their uh, comments and, and just rem- as a reminder of when I went to the funeral that I mentioned earlier and how just life-changing that was for me. Um, and then years later, I, I read Sandra Cisneros' House on Mango Street, and I was in high school. I read it at, at a remedial summer class because I failed English, <laughs> uh, which my dad never forgave me for. You know, hablas español, como no? <laughs> I digo, hablas inglés? Uh, so... I read it in a summer class. It was a photocopied um, version of House on Mango Street. And it was the first time I've ever read anything on my experience or that similar was similar to my experience. Um, so I think it definitely the notion of, of identity, of, of feeling self-worth is important. But then on the other side as well, with non-Latino students, um, I said earlier in my talk that uh, people will accept your food before they accept you as a person. And I think that, to me, the work that I do in the classroom is to get them to accept the people, not just the tacos on Tuesday. Yeah. So a lot of the emphasis was on the the Latina, Latino, Latinx students and the kind of value that this has for them. Um, I think you mentioned um, uh, the white students as well. Could you all elaborate a little bit more about why you think uh, Latino studies is valuable for everyone, um, especially at a predominantly white institution like the University of Iowa, for example? Yeah, I can um, start on that one. I think it's um, critically important. It's incredibly valuable at this time when uh, Latinos are so visible in uh, in public discourse and very negative and... and, uh, denigrating ways and it's useful to for students to get a more of an more of an in-depth um, analysis to some of these uh, controversies and dilemmas and 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 challenges that we see today beyond just maybe what they hear around the dinner table or the sound bites they get on Fox News or what they see posted on Facebook I mean all of those kinds of uh, expressions on social media or in the traditional media uh, or maybe even in conversations people have, they generally can be much more superficial and, uh, you know, on the surface than actually delving in deeply and understanding, for example, the role that Latino immigrants have played as laborers in this country for uh, more than a century, right? Or the role that uh, U.S. imperialism and uh, col- uh, colonization has played in driving migrants to come north. Uh, without an understanding of that, then we really can't engage in civic uh, dialogue and, and debate about these issues today and try to solve some of the dilemmas that we face. I um, I was talking about white students. I, I mean, I primarily teach white students and have my first job at University of Arizona. Um, probably maybe a quarter of the class was uh, uh, Chicano, Mexicano, um, but primarily white students um, at University of Notre Dame. Uh, 
I had a higher percentage of Latino students there, actually, because they uh, do a very good job of recruiting Latino students to Notre Dame. And then Ohio State, which is primarily white students. In a class of 40, I might have four Latino students. Um, in a smaller class, I will have more. In an intro to Latino studies class, might be half of <coughs> 20, so 10. Um, but uh, So I'm constantly teaching white students. And it is white students who are coming to class with the questions, who want to know, um, what is going on? <laughs> and they want to really learn about this literature. And they're very aware of what is being said about Latinos. The other thing that's surprising to me in, in was surprising to me at first in Ohio is that I have a lot of students who come, all of our students are, our students are mostly from Ohio and uh, from many small towns in Ohio. And they, they um, have met Latinos in their hometowns or have worked with them in the workplace or they have, they have these ephemeral experiences or transitory experiences, to come back to Lilia's title here of the transient, that, that sparks in them this curiosity and, um, and they bring that um, to the classroom. So they're working to educate themselves uh, and I really you know, value their effort uh, to do that. I think, uh, as Lilia's work uh, points us to, that the history of, of Latinos in this country is, is longstanding. It's not as immediate as some would like us to believe. Um, and recognizing then for folks, not just that these are new neighbors, quote unquote, new, but also just being cognizant of what is it like to be around folks um, that are maybe different from you, have a different history, have a different experience of what it means to be American than you, and truly become all-encompassing our understanding of each other, right? So as, you know, Latino neighbors start moving into your neighborhood, rather than reject them or resent them for their presence, start seeing them through what they contribute, what you can learn from them, um, what they provide in terms of a better knowledge base for you, what culture they bring, what literature they bring. Um, and so me, that that's part of understanding uh, an, uh, an American, a U.S. context that spans ethnicity, right? Um, and as we get increasingly global, I think that that's going to be the task for our ourselves as, as a country is to how do we engage and not close in like some would have us do. Yeah. I wonder if I can dig into this uh, to this kind of like connection to community a little bit more because uh, it's one that's definitely like animated uh, kind of my approach to thinking about Latino studies um, and I think our approach in uh, in putting together this Imagining Latinidades uh, seminar over the course of the year. I mean, there's there are reasons why we're hosting things at the public library and not in a lecture hall on campus, right? Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering, and I think all of you like address this in little bits in your research talks, but of course the people who listen to the podcast may not uh, have access to that. So feel free to draw from that uh, for your answer to this, to this question. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of take a moment to address explicitly kind of what the research uh, that you do or research in Latino, Latino studies more broadly uh, contributes not just to the academy, because I think you've, you've addressed that in different ways already, but also to our kinfolk and communities outside of scholarly spaces. So how does this, the, the scholarly work that we do um, and the instructional work um, 
contribute to those broader communities that either don't have access to the academy um, or just don't happen to necessarily be immediately in conversation with what we're doing in our publications and stuff like that? I think, um, well, I get a lot of feedback, particularly from people in the Chicago area who tell me, um, you know, I've read your book or parts of it or, you know, it was assigned in my class or I got it at the library and, you know, it, it was very meaningful to me or it was very important for me. Or, and they start to share their own family stories. Well, my family came here in such and such year and th- this is what my parents did for a living or whatever. So in that regard, that is really exciting to see and, and to hear, to, um, to know that people in the community who are not necessarily college students or who are not, um, you know, in higher education at all, uh, can relate to the, the work and and find it accessible. You know, I think that's 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 really significant. And I should say that I have always tried to make my work very accessible to the public. I want my mother to be able to read my book. Uh, my books. I, I don't want this to be an esoteric exercise just for those of us in the academy. And I think that a lot of us would, would agree with that, right? That's what drives the work that we do. I had another thought, but I will turn it over to um, one of my I'll say panelists. something real quick sure. about, on, on the, you know, you want your mother to be able to read it. I mean, when I first uh, kind of made the turn to uh, Latino studies Puerto Rican studies in particular, uh, in graduate school. Um, I know that uh, like every time I found basically, I don't know if it was every book that I bought for my own work, I bought an extra copy to send to her or, but it was definitely like some of the key ones. Like I remember, uh, I remember one package I sent to her had, uh, had Juan Gonzalez's Harvest of Empire and, uh, Jorge Duani's Puerto Rican Nation on the Move. <laughs> and I was expecting her to kind of like get into Gonzalez's just because, yeah, he's a, he's a journalist and that the book is so elegantly written. Not that Duani's isn't, um, but Duani's book is more scholarly. Well, she calls me and is like, oh my gosh, this book, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh yeah, you really like the Juan Gonzalez books? No, no, this Duani one, this is great. <laughs> um, and she just, yeah, I mean, she you know, barely has a high school education. Uh, but that, that kind of accessibility, like that's, like that's important. It's, it's meaningful as we move beyond these walls, but yeah. I just remembered what the other thing I was going to say, if I, um, if I could jump in right now, is that... Um, Making this accessible to the public is uh, really at the heart of the project that I started at Rutgers uh, called the Latino New Jersey History Project. So here I am making a shameful plug to um, send you to the website. Uh, If you do... We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Great. If you go to the Latino Caribbean Studies Department website at Rutgers University under the About tab, you'll see it there. But my idea behind uh, this was to do a community-based, student-led public humanities type of research initiative. And I have to say that the students have really enjoyed it. They, uh, some of them are super excited about interviewing their own family members and getting their stories about how they came to New Jersey from Ecuador, how they got here from Peru, from El Salvador, and, and different places. Uh, and I think it also shows them that, I think as, as Suhe said earlier, that their knowledge is valuable, that their experiences, even if they were just a factory worker or even if you know, they were you know, a cafeteria lady all their lives or whatever, that 
um, their lived experiences and what they know um, through, uh, you know, their migration, their settlement in, in particular communities, and they're raising their children and all of that, that that's valuable, and that professors at the university are interested in this. Yeah, yeah. I think exactly that point. You know, I, um, I, my work really tries to focus in on the everyday lived experience, and for anthropologists, that tends to be a moniker that we use a lot, but uh, we don't always do that, right? We focus on ritual or like big events or big like, political moments. And I wanted to make sure that um, in my work, I do kind of the everyday, again, I wanted my mom and my dad's stories to be able to come through. And I knew that they they worked or they were so busy, they would never be interviewed by a, a person that later would publish their work. So I wanted to make sure that those kind of voices still came through. And I remember... And I want them to feel important um, in, in that work. Um, I remember uh, one instance when I was doing work on my new project, I'm Mormon and Latinas, and I was in Salt Lake City at an event. There were, you know, there was a big church production event, and um, they were holding a meeting. The in person of the meeting introduced me, and there was, you know, people from all over Salt Lake City. They were volunteering for this event, and uh, one of the viejitas, one of the abuelitas, um, heard that int- my introduction was a doctora or Dr. Suhey Vega, and she goes, and she comes up to me afterwards, she goes, wait, you're a professor at the university? And I said, yes. And she starts pulling her, her um, nietas. You got to meet her. And then all the other women surround me. It was about 20 women that would introduce me to their daughters to show them, like, this could happen. Um, and then they would say something like, well, she's an expert. And I stopped and I said, you're the expert. I'm just here to listen and understand, right? And so I think that that kind of process is what I try to, to invoke in my research um, and give back in that way, um, on top of doing a bunch of other things in the community to kind mm-hmm. of offset the ivory tower that we live in. <laughs> For me, I think that uh, my parents and my family, the community I come from, are the inspiration for my work. And I have felt that so often in what I do um, when I think about the reasons why I'm curious about something, right? It, it has to do with um, some of the curiosities they instilled in me and some of the curiosities that emerged from uh, being in a, inhabiting a space with them together in a particular social and cultural world, right? That that, you know, sparked certain kinds of curiosities. I mean, I thought... As I was preparing the slideshow for today's presentation, I almost put in the side of my mom with the growing corn in the backyard, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, but so for that, in that way, I mean, one of the one of the people in the audience comments on how the the discussion of the milpa in the story reminded her of her of her parents who still maintain a milpa, you know, come from a milpa in, in Mexico. So that um, I, I'm I'm curious about uh, those um, those knowledge. I'm curious I'm curious about those things, and 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 ultimately, I think that we all are as as um, people in uh, Chicano, Latino, Mexicano communities, Puerto Rican communities, Dominican, that we are curious about ourselves. And and we don't know everything about ourselves. We're not born with the knowledge of everything about everything that all of our people ever did. 
um, or wrote or thought. Um, so we're curious about ourselves, and and the and the communities we come from are curious about about that, and and they deserve um, to have the ability to to create that knowledge in collaboration with others, um, and to see that knowledge reflected uh, in the universes that we inhabit, and have something to contribute. As I think I was talking about today, that have something to contribute to how we think about that world, even if you're not Latino or Chinese. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting that both, well, Lilia mentioned this, but I have the same story that I was discouraged from doing this work because mm-hmm. I'm too close. I'm too, I'm not objective enough. Mm-hmm. And how could you ever understand this experience from an objective perspective? And so even though it is definitely what drives us to do this kind of work, it's, by some it's looked upon as a negative, mm-hmm. right? And I are, always argue that actually it provides more passion, more more emphasis on making sure we do it right, mm-hmm. yeah. unlike some novels lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there is that that objection that your um, uh, you can't study where you're from is you know is definitely not one that all scholars encounter, um, and that you know has to do with the prevailing paradigm you know a prevailing paradigm in higher ed for a long time and in knowledge production for a long time that who are the people who can claim the universal right always to create knowledge it's not people who look like us, uh, and so that um, is slowly slowly being chipped away at and, and overturned and 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 I think that you all are doing such a fantastic job of contributing to that. <laughs> well, one final question before we wrap things up here um, and, and this is the question we always close on um, and that is what message do you have for the Latina, Latino, Latinx listener at a predominantly white institution uh, who doesn't feel like they belong? What's your message to them? Well, first and foremost, I would say that you do belong, of course, right? Uh, that you are, you know, wherever you are for a reason. And I would add, again, you know, my bias uh, as a uh, historian, that we have a rich history uh, in really unexpected places that we don't realize. And this is why I, I you know, presented what I did today because I really want people to know that there was a Mexican-American student at Ohio State in, in 1879 or whenever it was that, you know, that Latinos have been present in all sorts of uh, uh, spaces and places around the country. Uh, we just haven't been recognized or acknowledged. And I would also encourage uh, listeners who feel this way to uh, actively seek out ways of creating a sense of belonging and a creative, uh, uh, create a sense of uh, community wherever they are. Um, yeah, that would be my advice. I would say directly to them, we need you to finish. We need you to continue. We need your voices to continue adding to the conversations that we're, we're referencing. Um, and in part, that means going through some pretty heavy stuff at your institutions. And I know, I know that for a fact, I know what I've gone through. Um, but I remember when I first walked onto university of Illinois uh, campus, when I was a graduate student and I walked onto their quad. Now I'd gone to a small state school in Texas. We didn't, we had a campus, but it wasn't as nice and fancy, right. As Illinois was. And if you walk onto Illinois quad, you know what I'm talking about. It looks like an Ivy league school, even though it's not. (laughs) And so I, the first, step I took onto that quad, I cried because I remember my dad and my dad working day in and day out up to 60 hours a week. 
and my mom leaving her family. And I thought, I could do this. I have to do this for them. Um, and my dad passed away while I was in grad school. And there was a moment where I thought, should I, should I just stop? Right? Because I was over here when he passed away in Texas. Um, and I said, no, I've got to continue doing this for them. They didn't come here for me to just let, let other circumstances decide for me that I can't be here. I absolutely agree that finding um, people who support you, people who you can support uh, and be with in the space that you're in is really important to creating a smaller community of belonging if you don't feel like you belong in the larger place. But I think the other thing is if you only feel like you don't belong, then you very determinedly you need to work at finding what is your passion because if just the feeling of not belonging will drive you out finding what is your passion what is your curiosity what is the thing that you are going to make a contribution on Um, devote yourself to finding what that is and don't let anyone deter you from what you what you what what your questions are do that because that's the contribution you're going to make that's great. Thank you all so much for uh, for being with us. A round of applause for our guests, please. Um, as always, we love to hear your thoughts on Twitter. We're at Imagining Lat for the podcast. Um, and you can also shoot us an email at podcast at imaginingLatinidades.com. Um, as always, we also ask that you subscribe to this podcast and share it with friends and give it five-star reviews um, <laughs> and things like that that help us get noticed uh, and help, uh, help, help expose us to more people. Uh, with all that said, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a great audience. Uh, check the show notes for links to things that were talked about today. Uh, and that's it. We'll see you next time.